Today's episode of The Metrospective is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from GoToMeeting all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Add to your flash briefing on Alexa or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Welcome episode number 70 of The Metrospective. Pete McCarthy hanging out with Tim Britton, safely, socially distanced in uh, in various towns, only separated by a couple of miles here in Queens. But uh, how are you holding up, Tim? Everything good? You know, I was actually in your neighborhood earlier in the day because I, you know, I had to run my grocery shopping errands today. So I decided, uh, since I already had my mask on, to go to Astoria Beer and Cheese to pick up the oh. uh, the eponymous items there, both beer and cheese, uh, to get through the next couple of weeks. I, I thought about stopping by, but I feel like the pop-in isn't a great thing to do in the midst of all of this. Well, I'm, I'll meet you at Astoria Beer and Cheese. I mean, that that's a place to be. Yeah, and, and you know, I was the only one there. There it was a limit of five at a time, and I looked in, I'm like, yep, feel like, a, feel like it's okay to step inside. How many growlers did you fill up? Just one. Uh, I didn't want to go too overboard, you know. There's only so much you can drink in a short period of time. I find that it's not the case at all uh, of relate, but <laughs> everybody's handling this a little differently, uh, I tend to think. Um, so, obviously, we're waiting to see, will there be baseball? And it's been kind of the same question and holding pattern for the last few weeks. But uh, more details since the last time we spoke are you ready to quarantine in Arizona to cover what would be the most unique season in Major League history uh, if all 30 teams were to play out the year in Arizona? Well, the, the you know, I didn't see anything there about what media would be like uh, in this uh, plan that we, we kind of alluded to a little bit in the podcast earlier this week. We didn't have specifics about it at that point the way we got on Tuesday and Wednesday. Um you know, they didn't. I don't even know if they would want media there, if they'd want all the print media there, because that adds uh, more people. You know, if would broadcasters be there, or would they be broadcasting remotely? Uh, those are kind of ancillary concerns to the main thing, which is can you get upwards of a thousand baseball players uh, and uh, you know large staffs alongside them? You're talking probably about another 300 to 500 people, uh, just to in terms of a staff. Uh, like, can you quarantine that many people for that long? Uh, and I, I think, look, it's a nice thing to say in theory, but when you start to go down the list of, of how do you actually do this, you run into more and more obstacles. So at, at the moment, I, I just don't really see a way this works out that much. But I've seen Major League Baseball be criticized for even thinking of this sort of plan when you do have you know, still record numbers of daily deaths uh, every single day at this point throughout the country, throughout New York City, as we're starting to level off, but haven't quite gotten uh, to that point in the curve yet. But I, I, to be honest with you, I, and this will be the next question for the country as a whole, and, and certainly for sports, which is what we focus on here, but you have to 
start things up again at some point. And maybe that is a year and a half and it comes after a vaccine becomes publicly available for everybody. But you have to at least consider, well, if the curve does go down enough, what can we do? How can we keep pressing on? And I don't have any problem with Major League Baseball at least exploring possibilities and trying to be creative about it because for all we know, two months from now will be a very different situation than where we are today or what we're projecting two months from now look like is we've seen a lot of the projections come in under as people uh, for the most part have been responsible with the social distancing and it's been effective. Yeah, I mean, I think you've got to be creative in figuring out how to have a season if you want if if you're going to have a season in 2020 and i think the the best thing that uh, i guess we're calling it the arizona plan has is that there there are sides of this from from ownership and players that would want to play you know players want to get paid so they're going to want they'll be more amenable to you know if you give them the option you either don't get paid this year or you play in arizona and quarantine yourself from your family for three months you know, maybe not everyone agrees to that, but I think you get a fair amount of guys who agree to that. Uh, and ownership wants baseball as much as possible. So you've got kind of the, the strong interests on both sides want to get it done. And if this is the only way to get it done, then there's there's more energy toward trying to get something that seems kind of uh, ostensibly ridiculous. <laughs> um, I'll say that uh, on its face. Um, it's, it's just it's hard to imagine uh, making all of this complicated stuff work, you know, I, I think it was like John Heyman who tweeted, you know, the Arizona plan seems interesting. There's some momentum toward it. You know, there are some cons, though, and that, you know, what if a player gets sick or, or any number of these other things go wrong? You know, it really relies on enhanced testing, too, which is something, you know, we don't have yet. And uh, we've been saying for a while that's that's a, a thing we need, not just for, for baseball or for athletes. That's something that the country and, and a lot of countries need at this point and don't have. Uh, and the idea that that's just kind of like, you know, as, as long as we get that, we'll be fine. Like, that's a major hurdle to get over uh, that we haven't gotten to. Well, to be fair, baseball is working with the CDC as well as the National Institutes of Health. So it's not as if they're trying to figure all of this out on an island. They are working with some of the professionals that are uh, trying to wrap their heads around the, this coronavirus and handle it. Uh, but you hit on in all that what I think is the biggest holdback, and that is, Asking and or demanding, I, I suppose you can't quite do that, but uh, asking the majority of players to quarantine from families for months at a time. And I, I think even you and I might be in different situations with it, with where we are in our given lives. Uh, you have a fiance. I'm sure it would be difficult to quarantine for three months for something job related if you can you know, pretend you're a major league baseball player and millions of dollars are a possibility. Maybe you would... Uh, consider doing that and then you know for my situation I'm 35 so theoretically still of playing age uh, though that, that list is dwindling but yeah I have a one-year-old now and I can't imagine walking away for three months and being like I'll see you then and it could be four and a half months if let's say the team did well and, and ended up in the postseason so yeah, I really think you'd have so many players in different situations and I have to think there would be a number of guys that would just say you know, no, that, that's not something I'm willing to do. I mean, what if a parent uh, gets sick and then you can't go and visit them? I mean, there's just, um, you know, a, a number of things. But that's the number one thing to me is how do you do it if, say, only 80% of the players, and I think that's a high number, if 80% of the players are willing to go, 
Can you still have the Mets? Can you still have you know, the Indians or whoever? Or do you have to start creating fake teams, right? And and making like your own league of say 10 to 15 teams rather than doing a real major league baseball season. Yeah. Like at, at what point does it just become an, an exhibition tournament or something like that? You know, I, I saw, I think it was Zach Wheeler, you know, a former Met who's, who's, mm-hmm wife is pregnant and due to have a child in the middle of the summer and you know you don't that's something you don't want to be gone for not just you know it's like the two months leading up to it the two months after it like that's I think that's too much to ask of too many players uh you know and I've seen some reports that you know maybe they'd be able to have the their families there with them uh which further you know builds up that number of this quarantine town you're building uh, and and makes it even more complicated. So I think, look, we all want baseball back. Uh, if this is the only way to do it, then I think you're going to get people listening uh, more intently than otherwise. But there there are still uh, just so many hurdles that it, it's tough to imagine it coming to fruition, at least on the timeline that we've seen, which is you know maybe even having it back by the end of May or something. That just seems uh, too idealistic for for what we're going through. I, I think the timeline is, is fair to criticize, especially with the ramp-up time that would be necessary, just where we are now as we approach mid-April. The other aspect of this that I think is interesting, if, if you compare baseball to, say, the NBA, and like I was talking about, if you were to have an exhibition type of season and have you know Team Pete Alonso or Team Mike Trout and then you know do a draft like so many of these leagues do for the All-Star game, uh, that might be fun to have you know 10 teams with a designated star and they're all drafting other baseball players. Basketball, I feel like that would work. People would be interested in what, let's say, Team Giannis could do against Team... I'm trying to find like a young guy that maybe doesn't have a family, but uh, you know, I know Giannis just had his first kid uh, a few months back, but you know, I, I, a Team Donovan Mitchell, right? Like, I, I do think... For basketball, people would gravitate towards that. But this kind of gets into that same old discussion with baseball players not being superstars in their own right. Like, are you going to tune in to watch Team Mike Trout against Team, you know, Pete Alonzo? Would Alonzo be enough for a Met fan to sit there and say, okay, I'm going to watch this game. This is my team. This is who I'm going to root for here. And that's where, you know, I, I, I I think a lot of the different ways that you try to put this together for baseball become very difficult because fans are not as attached to the players. They're attached to the uniform and the history of their given team. And if you can't get all 30 teams in there, it gets tough. Yeah. I I don't know what kind of fan appetite there would really be for uh, essentially like an an exhibition season like that. Uh, Cause you know, like the NBA all-star game is fun to watch uh, for one night a year, but if they're playing that game, you know, different variations of that kind of game for several weeks or months, uh, you get a little tired of it and, and you don't kind of la- latch on to teams without that geographic uh, or, or personal connection that you've had throughout your life. So I think that would be uh, really hard to to buy into. And, and I, I don't think you'd have the same kind of uh, willingness from ownership. You know, it just gets into like, where are the, how are these games being broadcast? How is... Is SNY happy broadcasting a, a team Pete Alonzo rather than the New York Mets uh, mm. and, and all those complicating factors? No, it's true. I, and this is the thing. There's so many other aspects of this. Like, even if they were 
to figure out, okay, we could quarantine all the players in this town and they will play at this field or these fields. And even if you can make all of those logistics work, then it's how much do the players make? How much does ownership get? Where are you getting your money from TV? Is it going to be the regional sports networks or are you just going to have some kind of national deal or stream them all on MLB.com? Like you start working your way down the list of how many things have to get done. And all this would have to be done in a short period of time. And this goes back to my original point. Like this is why you have to start at least thinking about it and considering it, trying to figure it out now because this is only going to get more complex. I mean, you hit on something that I didn't even think about. Like, yeah, would you have writers there? Would you want the games broadcast in person or prefer to do it remotely? Like Gary, Keith, and Ron calling uh, MLB the show and, and having that streamed on SNY on Tuesday night, uh, you know, on SNY's website or YouTube uh, on Tuesday night. But, you know, these are the kind of things that all trickle down from it, and it gets... Uh, immensely, immensely complicated, even beyond, you know, again, the health and the A number one things that we as a country are still trying to figure out. Yeah, sports are, are more more complicated than you than you realize sometimes. It's not it's, it's not gym business. class rolling out the basketball. Yeah. It's it's more complicated and, and there's competing interests in a lot of ways. Uh and so it's you know, you're right. It's it's wise of them to be thinking creatively now. Uh, and you know, I, I'm sure Major League Baseball didn't exactly want everyone talking about it as if this were the only thing they were thinking about right now. Uh, but uh, that it tells you just how immense the challenge is to try to come up with something that works in 2020. And my personal belief is, you know, not that sports have a responsibility to to be there for us in in tragedy and in, in tough times, but. You know, they can be a real unifier. Uh, they can do a lot of things, especially when people are at home. And, you know, in our cases, in small apartments in Queens or, or wherever the heck people are, uh, to just have something to look forward to on a given night, I think is important. I mean, honestly, I, I know I've been criticized in in some corners, but I tip my cap to the UFC for trying to figure out how the heck can we put on these fights? And they found kind of a, you know, a, a, an end around way of doing it on an Indian reservation out in California for UFC 249. But they're going to have their own island in a couple of months. They're building up the infrastructure. Like, look, you got to have events. People need events and, and things to look forward to. I know WrestleMania was big for a lot of people this past weekend. And, you know, as for a lot of us, Monday, Sunday, Wednesday, it doesn't really make a difference. They're just all these days rolling together. I, I think it's nice for people to have something uh, that they can you know, look forward to, to watching on a given night, on a given day, whether it's a week from now, a month from now, two hours from now. And that's something that, I, I, you know, maybe it's because my life has revolved around sports, both professionally and personally. But it's that's one of the tougher parts of all of this but it, it's on the list just being at home and being in quarantine and not having you know the things that usually occupy my time and that i i do look forward to and then yeah i, I mean I, I remember i remember you know the, the first week everything kind of stopped uh my fiance and i were supposed to go to new orleans that weekend for a, a short trip uh and 
you know, we, we decided, you know, I'd, I'd gotten back from spring training on that, that Tuesday. And I think on Wednesday afternoon, we're talking like, we should probably not go. It's probably not the wisest idea, uh, which in retrospect looks, looks definitely smarter. Uh, and then I was like, you know what? It's, it's not the worst thing in the world. I'm just going to sit back and watch college basketball all weekend. <laughs> That'll be great because it, it's conference tournament weekend. It, it's going into to selection Sunday. I'm just going to binge on college basketball because I hadn't watched a lot of the season uh, and then <laughs> a couple hours later, it's like, well, no more college basketball. Um, so it, it is, it has definitely taken some getting used to, uh, and it, it still feels off. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know about you. I think this week in New York, at least with the weather getting nicer the last several days, uh, has been the first time where I'm just like, man, it really feels like we should be watching some baseball at this point, you know? Because, you know, the season used to start about this time. It wasn't always like March 26th, the way it was supposed to start this year. Uh, so it's, it's finally getting to that time of year where it, it feels definitely strange to not be watching baseball. No, Thursday afternoon, it rained. And in my mind, I was like, oh, th- this would usually be me wondering, will the Mets play tonight? <laughs> and uh, that's you know not really a, a consideration these days, but it, it often would have been. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you hope to get back to that and to have sports back. And it, it would be such a plus because you have to stamp out the virus to some degree in order to reach that point. And it would be such a positive indicator that we as a country are doing the right things and uh, doing what we can to, to limit the spread of the coronavirus. And then you, know, you can have sports back. And that'll be one of those things. Maybe the last thing, as it turns out, or at least fans going to games, uh, that does come back, but it'll be it'll be a big indicator of positivity whenever it, it is that that happens. And you know, again, I'm all for Major League Baseball looking into these kinds of things. I mean, they heck, we could jam out to Tim Britton's favorite song uh, if baseball does come back this year and do some tub thumping. I mean, what do you think about that, Tim? <laughs> Uh, no song ever hit me harder and, and better than Tub Thumping when I was in fifth grade. That was just like I'd be doing homework and, and you'd have Z100 on uh, because they played that song every hour on the hour, basically. Uh, and it would just be like, OK, I get to pause for five minutes, listen to this awesome song, and then I'll get back to doing my homework afterward. Good old Chumbawamba. And if you wonder where the heck that came from, uh, Tim <laughs> wrote an article about Mets One Year Wonders, and he hit on his favorite one-hit wonder, Chumbawamba, as uh, part of the lead of that. But this is where I-, I did enjoy the song as well. I remember being at elementary school and listening to it, I believe, for the first time on the Long Island Railroad on a field trip to the city. I mean, I, I remember uh, my first time hearing this song and then hearing it incessantly for the next two, three weeks, whatever it was. You want Chumbawamba to be part of your wedding playlist? <laughs> Are you serious? You know, there's a there's a lot of songs on a wedding playlist. It's five hours of music, Pete, uh, or as close to it. So, you know, I think why not devote some of that time to getting knocked down and getting back up again? Because that's oh that's going to be part of of life after this. That's true, especially having uh, you know a wedding and that kind of big event. But I mean, you might as well just let the dogs out and go uh, go back to two thousand. <laughs> Who let the dogs out if you're going to go Chumbawamba at this wedding? No, no. Who let the dogs out did not do it for me as much. Maybe if, if they changed it to who let the Mets out, the what was that, the 2000 version, 
where you you threw in like Edgardo Alfonso's name and stuff. Um, maybe that version, but but still, I you know, it's just it's just musically not as crisp to me. Mets one year wonder. I I, I read your article and you had a, a number of uh, good names and people seem to agree for the most part. I'm Timo Perez all all the way. I like what happened there and how quickly it dissipated in the World Series. But what Timo Perez was able to do late in the 2000 season, that NLCS against the Cardinals, and never like it looked like he might be a star in the making, and then never came close to that level again. He's got to be my ultimate one year wonder for the New York Mets. Yeah, I mean, like, I looked back at that NLCS because we've, I mean, I feel like he's come up in our conversation like two or three times lately. Uh, and in my mind, Timo Perez hit 500 in that NLCS with like eight doubles in five Did games. Did he not? Uh, and and he, he was seven for 23 with two extra base hits, both doubles. But what made it what made it so important was he was four for five in the first inning as the leadoff man with two doubles. Uh, and scored four runs in the first inning. The Mets scored 12 runs in the first inning of that series. They scored in the first in every game. Uh, and so that was, you know, they, they scored twice in the top of the first of game one, a game they, they cruised in. Uh, they scored early in game two against Rick Ankiel. Uh, I thought, you know, the biggest game, biggest inning of that series was the bottom of the first of game four when they had lost game three and the Cardinals had scored twice in the top of the first. And the Mets come back and score four. They hit like five straight doubles or something. Uh, and Perez was such a part of that. And then you go right into the next series, game one of the World Series, and what? And we all know what happened. Um, and so he just kind of went from cult hero to persona non grata in the span of like four days, uh, yeah. or, or really three bases, from, fir- from first base to home uh, in the sixth inning of game one. Uh, and I, you know, I hadn't forgotten, like, you know, two years later, I think in 2002, mm-hmm. he had like a decent year as a part-time player for the Mets. Uh, Hit 295. Just, you know, yeah, you know, was about as good as he had down the stretch in 2000, but was never took the leap that it seemed like he might he might make the leap that you know Melvin Mora made after a similar postseason role in '99 mm. once he got traded to Baltimore. Yeah, Melvin Mora kept it up for a, a number of years, and I, I suppose I didn't realize how good Timo Perez was that 2002 season, but came out of nowhere in 2000, played 24 games in the regular season, really just down the stretch as a 25 year old rookie, and then. Uh, you know, did what he did in the postseason, both positive and negative. Would you agree with Timo as one-year wonder? Who who else would you give uh, give a nod to? You know, uh, like Mike Jacobs had that kind of Shane Spencer finish to the 2005 season when he hit uh, what was it, 11 homers in 30 games, uh, and and you know that, that was when the Mets were like 2005 was the first year they started to look pretty good. Uh, they went. I think they won 83 games that year, but you could see the core coming in with with Wright and Reyes uh, and Jacobs. It was like, oh, like maybe this is this is the guy who plays first with these guys uh, and gets them over the hump in, in 2006. Uh, and then of course they moved him for Carlos Delgado, which was a wise decision. Um, you know, Duaner Sanchez in 2006 was such an integral part of that bullpen for four months until that July 30th car accident in the cab in Miami. Uh, and that, that makes him a four-month you know, wonder. You can't be a one-year wonder <laughs> if you didn't make it through the year. <laughs> what's, what's Timo then? A five-game wonder? <laughs> Fair point. At least he uh, got to October. You know, yeah, I, I think. And if we're talking about one-hit wonder, Daesung Koo is is the one who really stands out. 
for the the double off Randy Johnson and the the trip around the bases against the Yankees there. Uh, I guess that was 2005. All, all I'm thinking about are, are 2005, 2006 guys. Uh, but uh, I think those well, guys. Well, Joe Christopher you know, we, is someone we, we've mentioned in the past. We named uh, a, a an episode for him and his what 1963 season or whatever it was. Yeah, 64. 64. You know, it's it's like different people have different views of one-hit wonders. Like I don't I don't consider R.A. Dickey a one-hit wonder because he was really good the two years before he won the Cy Young. I don't consider mm-hmm. Bernard Gilkey a one-year wonder because he was pretty good for the Cardinals before he had that awesome 96 season with the Mets. Some people might think of those guys as, as more one-hit wonders. You know, Craig Swan had an awesome year in like 1975 or 1978, and he was like, okay, the rest of his career outside of that one year but i feel like if you're a serv- if you're a pretty good player who has one really good year it's not really a one-hit wonder in my mind although other people might disagree with that now to be fair the only thing better than a one-hit wonder is a no-hit wonder and of course that's only happened once in, in Mets history Johan Santana against the Cardinals you rewatched that game last week uh, what what was it like to revisit that? You got Carlos Beltran and the Cardinals at the time, and obviously the hit that kind of wasn't. Uh, but was there anything that jumped out at you? I mean, I just remember the panic at the end of the game with Yadier Molina on deck, and thankfully it didn't reach that point. But what stuck out to you rewatching Johan Santana's magical night? First of all, amazing transition there. Man, you should work in radio. Uh <laughs> Like uh, watching that, you know, I think what what I had never watched the full game before uh, and I wasn't watching the full game that night. Uh, and so what what struck me was that it kind of sneaks up on you in the middle innings. You know, as a, a person who wa- has watched a lot of Mets games in my life, uh, there'd be times where like in the second inning of a start, you're like, ah, there goes the no hitter or something like, you know, you track it very early on. And watching that game, you know, he gets through the first four innings, I guess the first three innings without giving up a hit, but it doesn't feel like that because he's walked a few guys. Uh, there, there's been, it's been traffic on the bases. You know, that Beltron play is the first time you like, you start to think, huh, I guess if something does happen here, you know, you file away a note about it. Uh, I thought that I thought the Beltron ball was more fair than it was. I, it was a closer call than I remember it being. It's, it's clearly fair. But I thought it was like egregiously fair. Uh, it wasn't that bad a call by Adrian Johnson um, to, to his defense. And then, you know, Santana kind of cruises in like the fifth, sixth, and seventh innings. And that's when you really feel the momentum. And once he batted in that bottom of the seventh, oh. uh, then, you know, he was at like 106 pitches. That was the spot. If you were going to pull him, you were going to pull him right there. Once he came into that on-deck circle, uh, you, you knew that, okay, he's, he's in this for the long haul. And uh, Terry Collins looked like it was the worst night of his life uh, in the dugout. And I think I think he has said as much since. Uh, so uh, just uh, still still remarkable that he got through it. And, and you mentioned Molina uh, on deck at the end and he falls behind David Freeze three and oh. And I remember wa- that part I was watching live back in 2012 and thinking like, you've got to be kidding me. Like Molina's going to do, he's going to come up. He's not only going to wreck the no hitter. He's going to hit like a two run homer. Santana's <laughs> going to throw 140 pitches for no reason. He's not even going oh, to get a complete game. Not going to get a no hitter. Not going to get a shutout. Not going to get any of this. Uh, and it's all going to be for waste. And then Santana comes back to get freeze and, and get out of it. 
You know, you mentioned how much he, he struggled early on in the game. And, and I suppose you think, oh, I'm going to go back and watch this no-hitter. It's going to be a dominant performance end-to-end. And so many of the no-hitters aren't. Like, I remember being at Clay Buckholz's no-hitter. I happened to be at Fedway Park that night against the Orioles. And he walked a bunch of guys early on. It wasn't until, like, the fifth inning I just happened to look at the scoreboard. And I went, oh, he hasn't given up a hit. Like, sometimes it doesn't feel like that at all. And it's really just this to some degree i mean statistical anomaly like oh he has to give it up a hit and then the sixth seventh inning it becomes this great drama because there's so much attached to not allowing a hit even if you walked eight along the way yeah i mean like the the one no hitter i've seen in person was roy halliday's no hitter in the playoffs and that was the opposite feel like he walked jay bruce in the fifth inning and in my mind i just went oh it'll be a no hitter instead of a perfect game because it was so clear how dominant he was early in that game. Uh, and, like, if he had given up a hit, I would have been shocked uh, at that point. Uh, and then, you know, the, the Santana one is a little different. You know, it's like Phil Humber's perfect game uh, didn't feel quite the same way that, like, Felix Hernandez's did. Uh, different guys kind of give you different feels about about how dominant they are in a given night. And, you know, certain start, like, you know, when, when Max Scherzer is striking out 19 Mets, that feels... Uh, more dominant than than other ones, than Chris Heston, for instance. Or, uh, you know, Armando Galarraga, who's like laughing at himself the whole time because he couldn't believe that he was actually throwing a no-hitter. Was it a perfect game? I think it would have been a perfect game. Was, and yeah. then he do, had the, do you the think, bungled call at first base. Do you think Armando Galarraga is more famous because he didn't get the perfect game than he would have been if he got the perfect game? Yes. Because I talk about it all the time. Because I remember all of the emotions of watching this. Like, here is this guy who isn't good. And, like, knows he's not good. Because he's laughing about it at the end of every half inning. Like, when you watched him go off the mound in the seventh, in the eighth, he's just, like, laughing to himself. Like, this is preposterous that I, Armando Galarraga, are retiring every batter that I face. And what just cinched it for me is his reaction. See, he's the one with the ball in his glove, touching the bag for the final out of this perfect game. And then Jim Joyce blows the call and he he slumps for a second. And he's just like, I knew it was too good to be true. Like you can just sense all of that with his body language. Like to me, that's a game that's worth going back and watching because just his, it, all of his matters. If you saw everything that was going on, he's wearing his heart on his sleeve that entire second half of the game, and you could feel all of those emotions. And then he turned around and still got the 28th guy to ground out to short, and he retired, really, 28 in a row. Well, I mean, what's what's crazy about that, like, I'm, I'm looking up the dates here, because that was, you would have had three perfect games in a month. In baseball, because you had Dallas Braden in, in on Mother's Day in May for Oakland, mm-hmm. and then Halliday in late May, and then the Galarraga game was like the was June second. So you could have had, like I remember in when I saw that he had one in like the sixth or seventh inning. I was I was at City Field covering the game that night, thinking like, you've got to be kidding me. We can't have another one of these. This is it's a perfect game. It's supposed to happen like once every four or five years, you know. Uh, and and actually we haven't had one in baseball. I mean, when's the last one? Have we had one since since Felix Hernandez? Um, so it, it, you're, it's so. supposed to be a, a bun. 
it's supposed to be a long time between perfect games. And it was like, no, man, like anyone's waking up, rolling out of bed and throwing a perfect game. This is ridiculous. And then at the end, I, I felt really bad that he didn't get it. But I, I agree with you. I think I think it is more memorable than like Phil Humber's in 2012 uh, it, it is maybe as forgettable as, as one is because it's him. Uh, well, it's the same Galarraga, thing. We it's, remember, yeah. It's like Galarraga. You know, it would have been, oh, Philip Humber. Oh, Galarraga. Like, these aren't the guys that you expect to be on this list. Yeah, you know, it's it's Halliday and Randy Johnson and Felix mm-hmm. Hernandez, uh, Sandy Koufax. Those are the guys who should be throwing perfect games. And Felix is the last one, 2012, you're correct. Matt Kane a few months before him. But pitching dominated back then, up until and through 2014, and then things started to turn a little bit after that to the hitters' favor, and obviously to a ridiculous degree as uh, recently as last season of 2019 when the ball's jumping out anywhere. But uh, we we have seen that aspect of the game uh, certainly change, I think, for the better. I mean, you need to have some offense. Some of those games watching in 2014 were, were tough. It was, it was just it, the hitters were so overmatched at the time, and um, – seemingly unable to score. Uh, and, and I guess you could be frustrated about the adjustment to the home runs and you still have all the strikeouts, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, so this week, Tim, uh, what do we have uh, What do we have on tap? What do you plan on writing about? Will we get uh, one of the editions of the Tim Times for all of us to read? <laughs> you know, the, the problem is all of the, old, the archives of the Tim Times, as you can imagine, it's a very large archive uh, is in my. Well, what is it? Basement. First of all, what what are the Tim Times? <laughs> the, the the Tim Times for those who who don't know. I don't I don't know who you are out there who doesn't who don't, <laughs> don't know the Tim Times uh, was the uh, newspaper that I had as a child uh, that I started probably when I was eight or nine years old writing. Uh, some would say strongly editorialized columns about my my basketball misadventures against my brothers uh, or about the Mets or about the Giants. Uh, really strong opinion pieces more so than anything else uh, about the uh, unfairness and injustice of the referees calls in that Giants Cowboys game or something like that. Uh, and so I have all of the old issues of the Tim Times, uh, which were printed out for my family and for my neighbors across the street, the Petrie family. Who never asked for it, but always said a kind word about it when they found in their mailbox an unsolicited copy of their of the eight-year-old neighbor's newspaper. Uh, so all, all those old issues, I suppose we can call them, are at my parents' house. If I had them, that would be the perfect... I would love to go back and annotate and point out all of the flawed logic. Not just not just like the bad journalism, but the, the giving like Luis Lopez an A- for the first half of the 97 season. Clearly not worthy of an A-. That's That's... <laughs> too lenient a grade as we all know so uh maybe i'll maybe i'll make my mom dig them out when she's when she doesn't have anything to do in the next couple weeks and send me photos did he get a demerit for punching or or was that uh separate (laughs) i I don't think i followed closely enough to know all about the off-field issues for the the mid-90s mets um all right, so, but I, I bring it up because it came up in an article, and this said it was you, Mark Carrig, Lindsey Adler, who covers the Yankees, uh, Rustin Dodd, and I'm probably missing one or two, but uh, all you guys were discussing in the craft uh, what it is to be a, a baseball writer, and I thought it was a really unique perspective, and if you're someone who is or knows someone who's interested in writing about sports, uh, it's worth checking out. I'm just curious about it. 
Uh, I thought you guys were pretty insightful and honest and obviously busting on each other, which is how the Tim Times came up uh, throughout throughout that piece. So you can uh, check that out on the site. We'll, of course, be back with you another edition of the Metrospective on Tuesday morning. It'll be our 71st. Uh, two players, Tim, of war number 71 in the history of the New York Mets. Gonzalez, her men, and Ryan O'Rourke. Uh, I will throw out Tom Seaver at a hell of a 71 <laughs> season that I started looking back at the numbers and getting angry about something. Uh, but what direction would you like to go? Oh, I mean, it's really a toss up between Gonzalez, Herman, Ryan O'Rourke and Tom Seaver. I'm not sure which <laughs> of the three left. the. You know, I guess we already did name an episode after Seaver, but. If we're gonna if we're gonna double dip on anyone, uh, let, let's let's double dip on the franchise and Tom Seaver. That's a good one. He had a great seventy one season. So I'm looking at it. A career best one seven six ERA, two hundred eighty nine strikeouts, twenty one complete games. All the best he did in his Hall of Fame career, and he didn't win the Cy Young. I'm like, who had just a, a knock of sock of 71 season? Like, you know, there's no Bob Gibbs in 68 that I can think of off the top of my head. So I go back and I look on baseball reference, and it's Fergie Jenkins. So it's like, okay, Fergie Jenkins is pretty good. I'm comparing the numbers here, Tim. And in 2019-2020, there is no way that Tom Seaver is being denied a Cy Young when you look at the numbers side by side with Fergie Jenkins. Now, Jenkins threw a lot more innings, to his credit, threw 325 innings, and that was a, a touch less than 40 innings more than Seaver. But to me, it just looked like Jenkins had four more wins, so he got the Cy Young. And then the ERA, yeah. the strikeout, I mean, some of this stuff was ridiculous. What were the voters thinking 40 years ago, <laughs> 50 years ago? I don't know, 48 years ago. See, here's the issue: is Fergie Jenkins threw 40 more innings, but he allowed 44 more earned runs yeah. than Seaver did that season. So, I mean, Seaver's ERA was a full run lower, uh, but it, it really does go to show you, like it was, it was wins that was that was what mattered. And uh, you know, it's only really recently, like I remember in in 2010 when I think Felix Hernandez beat CC Sabathia, like that was the first time it felt like people stopped caring so much about wins. Because that was the only reason not to give it to, to Hernandez was he didn't have enough wins. Uh, so it's it's really only this last decade. You know, you can go through so many years where that specific thing would cost someone a Cy Young. Whether, you know, you can point to Johan Santana in, I guess, 2005 with the Twins when he lost out to Bartolo Colon. It was wins. You go back to, like... Uh, Roger Clemens in 1990, I think that was the year Bob Welsh won 27 games. And, you know, it didn't matter. ZRA was a, a run or a run and a half higher than Clemens. Like, he won 27 games. He gets the Cy Young. It was That's just kind of how it worked for so long in this sport. Stupid wins. Uh, so, anyway, and now I'm bitter about Tom Seaver being robbed of what would have been a fourth uh, Cy Young. Uh, but, anyway, we'll, we'll all get over it, I suppose. Um all right, uh, that'll do it for this edition of the Metrospective. Don Clendenin, who was named for him. Of course, the World Series MVP in 69. Had a nice 1970 season with the Mets. That's why we went with him. Uh, but we'll be back with you on Tuesday morning. Stay healthy, stay safe, uh, seriously, and we hope you're staying sane as well on top of that, though that's kind of a luxury these days, I feel like. But, uh, Tim, you as well, and uh, always a pleasure, sir. Adios, Pete. <laughs>